In the 1950s, a Chicago housewife named Dorothy Martin picked up a new hobby, automatic writing. We've all been there, right? You just get an empty pad of paper and a pen and just start writing down the messages you get from the great beyond. No, that's, that's kind of a weird hobby. But as something of a house husband myself, but with the benefit of the internet and streaming services, can't really say that I blame her too much for finding herself bored in the 1950s, but it was through her refining her skills at automatic writing that she eventually claimed to receive a grave warning from the Guardians. Not the Cleveland baseball team, but actually a group of extraterrestrials from the planet Clarion. And Dorothy believed that these aliens were warning her that large portions of the United States, Canada, Central America, and Europe would be destroyed by a flood before dawn on December 21st, 1954. Along with this warning, she received other messages from these aliens, including one that promised that she and others like her who believed in this prophecy would be rescued from the flood via a flying saucer. And so she began recruiting a group of fellow UFO truthers to believe in this prophecy and what she functionally did was created what many believe to be one of the earliest UFO religions. Now, as this group, who came to become known as the Seekers, grew in numbers and in notoriety, eventually they caught the attention of the media and then a newspaper article was written about them and their beliefs. Now, the headline of this news article caught the attention of another group, this time a group of social psychologists who were interested in this very phenomenon, failed prophecy, disconfirmed expectations, and ultimately how people cope with what they believe will happen, what do they do when it ends up not happening. So this group of psychologists, without the consent or knowledge of the seekers, infiltrated their group and began documenting everything that they witnessed. They would go to their events, they would be with them, and they would document this group's beliefs, and then they would sneak off to a restroom or the porch or a nearby hotel room that they had booked and write down all of their findings and the things that they had observed. And they documented and compiled all of this stuff into a book with an incredible title. The book is called When Prophecy Fails, a social and psychological study of a modern group that predicted the destruction of the world. Now, with this book, the psychologists were interested in answering this question. What happens when this doesn't happen? What do people do when they've committed their entire lives to a prophecy about a certain date, and then that date comes and nothing happens? How will these people who have sold their houses, quit their jobs, left families behind, all in service of this prophecy, how will they respond when the prophecy fails? What happens on December 22nd when there's no flood, no flying saucer, and no fulfillment of the prophecy? Because of course the day came and there was no flood, there was no flying saucer, there was no fulfillment of the prophecy. And what happened at first is, as with any good doomsday prophet, they claimed that they just got their calculations wrong, that something was wrong in the messages, and they actually just got the date wrong, and that it's actually going to be a little bit further down the road. But, of course, that day came and went again without event. And what happened after that is that some of the seekers finally, after two failed prophecies, gave up. They went back to their lives. They abandoned the prophecy and tried to forget that the whole thing had ever happened. Others, however, doubled down on the claim 
and claim that it actually was going to happen. But because of their resoluteness, because of their commitment to the prophecy, they had helped save the world and crisis was averted. Now, this whole ordeal from the setting in the 50s to the fact that it began with the housewife, this whole group and their beliefs and being called the seekers, and really the psychologists infiltrating their group and their dubious methodology and questionable ethics of not getting the consent or even the knowledge of what they were doing from the group that they were infiltrating, I find all of this story incredibly interesting. And I'm honestly shocked that it already hasn't been turned into an HBO limited series or a movie and that the way that I found out about it was through a random late night deep dive into Wikipedia. But what I find really interesting about this whole story is if we take the question that serves as the backdrop, as the premise of that book, and we apply it to our relationship with Jesus. And that question is this, what happens when our beliefs and our experiences don't line up? For most of us, our belief isn't in a coming flood prophesied by aliens, but I think we've all come up through this experience. And I think what we all eventually find is that between what we believe and what we experience, there's a gap between what we believe about God and what we experience from God. There is a gap. See, we believe that God is with us. We believe that his presence is available to us. But a lot of times what we experience is isolation or God's absence, or we believe that God is good, that he has a good plan for our life. But oftentimes what we experience is hardship, struggle, suffering, and those things can lead us to doubt that God actually is good. We believe that God is freedom, but what we experience is bondage. We believe that God can and does answer prayer, but what we often experience is that our prayers go unheard and unanswered. We believe that God is love, but what we experience is this feeling that God couldn't possibly love me. And these are all just general examples. I believe that if all of us took a second to examine our life, to interrogate our experience, we could find specific examples where we have found this gap in our lives, where we believe things about God, but what we experience from God is different. And when that happens, I think we end up asking ourselves specific questions, like how could God possibly be with me if I've never even heard his voice? How can I believe that God is good if he allowed my partner to be unfaithful to me? How could I believe that God is love if he did nothing to stop the abuse that I experienced? How can I believe that God is real if he hasn't set me free from this addiction that I've begged him to take away from me? And maybe the questions that you ask don't sound like those specific ones, but the truth is, is that this gap exists in some fashion for all of us. And when we come up against that realization that there is a gap, it can be a painfully uncomfortable experience for us. But this is actually not a new experience. If you have your Bible close by to you, go ahead and grab it and flip it open today. We're going to be reading together from Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to begin in verse 16. Beginning in verse 16, it says this, Someone came to Jesus with this question, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? 
Why ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones? The man asked. And Jesus replied, you must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is is possible. I've always been really fascinated by this passage, partly because at every turn it subverts our expectations, but also because it contains one of Jesus's funniest lines we read in all of the Gospels. But what we see in this notorious passage is that the young man actually did believe a lot of the right things. He recognized Jesus as a teacher with authority on what is actually good. He believed that Jesus knew about eternal life and how to have it. And he had even followed a lot of the right rules throughout his entire life. And yet, despite the fact that he believed all of the right things, his experience told him that there was something he was missing, that there was something more. And so he came up against this gap and he went to Jesus to help close that gap. But what Jesus answered, what Jesus's answer revealed to this young man is that he had actually been widening that gap on his own in three big ways. And those three ways, I think we also tend to widen our gap unintentionally. And those three ways are by listening to the wrong voices, entertaining the wrong attitudes, or by having the wrong priorities. And so first, we tend to widen this gap by listening to the wrong voices. This young man came to Jesus asking about goodness. In some translations, he calls Jesus good teacher. In the translation we just read, he says, what good thing must I do in order to have eternal life? And ultimately, what he's asking about is goodness. And what Jesus sends him back to is his understanding of goodness. Jesus says, why ask me what is good? He's challenging this young man's understanding of goodness. And he's asking him, is that understanding coming from God or is it coming from somewhere else? And it appears that he had been listening to wrong voices, which is something I think that all of us ultimately do. For some of us, the wrong voices that we listen to are the voice of others. We have an overfocus on what other people say or think about us. And as a result of that, we change the way that we live. We rethink what we wear, what we say, what we do, how we live, the, where, where, how we parent. All of those things end up being dictated by other people when we let the voice of other people be too loud and too important in our life. Whether that voice of others comes from our family of origin or our parents or our friend circle or even complete strangers, people on the internet, we end up listening too much to the voice of others. But for some of us, the voice that we listen to, that we listen to too much is the voice of media. 
It could be social media, news media, entertainment media. For so many of us, that is the dominant voice that we allow in our life. We can't stop scrolling. We can't stop looking for more further proof of societal collapse. We can't help ourselves from searching out the latest new trends or discovering the hot new conspiracy theory that's out there. But whatever our preferred poison is, the result of listening to too many voices from different types of media is a widening of the gap between what we believe about God and what we experience in our day-to-day life. It ends up widening the gap between what we believe about God and what we can experience Him, but so too can entertaining the wrong attitude. My favorite part of this passage is a very subtle but really fascinating difference between what this young man says and what Jesus says about eternal life. See, the young man comes to Jesus asking him how he can have eternal life, and Jesus responds to him by telling him how he can receive eternal life. Now, what's, what's the difference? The having and receiving, those sound very similar, almost like synonyms, but I think we get a big clue by a, a widely understood nickname for this young man. See, if you still have your Bible next to you and you look at this passage where we read, if you look right above verse 16 where we began, it probably has in italics a subtitle for this passage and a nickname that this man has come to be known throughout church history, and it likely says the rich young ruler. That's what he's come to be known of throughout the years. And I think that title tells us a few things about who this guy was as a person. It tells us the three obvious things, that he was rich, that he was young, and that he was a ruler. But if we think about that a little bit deeper, it tells us rich means he has a lot of possessions. He has wealth. He's young. That means he has experienced this this wealth and this success in a short amount of time. And a ruler means that he has a certain amount of power in some context. And what it tells me is that he is used to approaching life and the world through a certain lens. And that lens is through possession, privilege, and power. This is someone who is used to getting what he wants. It's someone who's used to getting his way, getting the things that he wants to own. And he's used to being in a privileged position. And so Why not approach eternal life the same way? And so he asks Jesus, how can I have it? What can I do to obtain it? How can it be one more thing in my trophy collection that I've earned, that I've been successful at getting or used my power to take over? And Jesus is saying that it's not actually something that you can have. It's not something that you can earn. It's not something that you can possess. Eternal life or life of the age to come, life of the kingdom is something that you must receive. Or to be more accurate to the original language, it's something that you must enter into. Jesus is saying this isn't something that you can have. It's something that you must enter into. See, that's the difference between having and receiving. When we want to have something, whatever it is, we can save for it. We can take it. We can earn it. We can buy it. We can do some kind of action in order to get it. But what Jesus is saying is that this requires an entire attitude shift. It's not something that you can have. It's something that you must receive. It's something that you must enter into. And so the young man needed an entire attitude shift. And in order for us to close the gap between what we experience from God 
and what we believe about God. To close that gap, we must also leave some attitudes behind. We must shift our attitude. And one of the biggest attitudes that holds us back is when we entertain a selfish mindset. A selfish mindset is when we want something so badly that we will do whatever it takes to get it, even if what it takes to get it is at the expense of others. And oftentimes, this mindset includes a a view that says, if they get it, whoever they might be, then I won't. I see this, this play out every day with my two young children where they believe that if their sibling gets something, it means that they can't have anything. They're, they're just stuck with nothing. If they have it, then I don't. And I see it in my children and it makes sense with children because they're still learning. But I also see it in myself. I see it in adults around me where we entertain this mindset. If they get something, then I won't. If my coworker gets that promotion, then I'm never going to be able to advance in this company. If this person gets in front of me in the merging lanes in traffic, it means that I'm never going to be able to get to the destination that I'm reaching. And so, so many of us entertain selfish mindsets where we are willing to do whatever it takes to get what we want, even if it's at the expense of other people. Maybe the thing that you want so bad is just the newest car, the newest house, the newest device, and what you're willing to do to get it is go into debt. Maybe the thing that you want so badly is just some peace and quiet in your house and you're willing to yell at your children out of anger in order to get it. A selfish mindset is to remix a phrase from Pastor Chris from a few weeks ago. It's when we are focused on me at the expense of we. And no matter what it looks like in our life, selfish mindset always holds us back. Another wrong attitude that many of us entertain in our lives is simply shame at the existence of this gap that we've been talking about in the first place. See, a lot of us fully believe the things about God that we know we should. We believe he's good. We believe he's kind. We believe he's powerful. We believe that he's loving. And yet sometimes our experiences don't line up with that. So we start to feel shame when we recognize the gap. And we can end up thinking things like, I know God is love, but it doesn't feel like he loves me. What's wrong with me? Or I know God is real, so the fact that I'm struggling with these doubts means that I'm a bad Christian. See, we recognize the gap, but then we interpret the gap's existence as somehow our fault, and the result of that is shame. And then shame is a vicious cycle that locks us in place and can be very difficult to climb out of. But at the end of the day, shame is a wrong attitude that will hold us back. And then lastly, a way that we unintentionally widen the belief and experience gap is by having the wrong priorities. This is the most obvious one for our boy in the story here. Jesus had pointed out the wrong voices in his life. Jesus had brought attention to the wrong attitudes that he had. And so Jesus gives him one last thing that he can do, one thing with three steps to get back on the right track. Jesus invites the man to sell everything he owns, give all of it to the poor, and then come follow Jesus. And I think we tend to focus on the sell everything you have part. And that's understandable because it's so radical. It's such a big ask that Jesus is making of this young man. But the true heart of what Jesus is asking him to do is the come follow me part. See, the the sell everything you have is the what 
is the how to get to the what of Jesus was truly asking this man to do, the come follow me. That's really what Jesus wanted for this man's life was for this man to come follow me. But Jesus knew this, in order to get there, this young man had to sell everything he had. Jesus knew that his attachment to his possessions, the focus that he had placed on those things ultimately is what would keep him from entering into the life of the age to come. See, Jesus was ultimately testing where this man's allegiance was, where his priority, where his priorities were. And the way that this young man responded shows that he had his priorities wrong. In a word, what we see unfolding in this story is idolatry, idolatry. This man had made possessions and wealth the thing that mattered more than anything else, including the original question that he had asked about entering into eternal life. And that's ultimately what idolatry is, even for us today. It's misplaced priorities. It's when we take something, it could be anything, even something good, and we make it the ultimate good. It's when we give something more importance than it was ever meant to have. It can look like when we become so focused on our relationship with someone with a significant other that we push out our relationship with Jesus. It can look like when we become so driven by our career opportunities that we drive out spending time and growing in our relationship with Jesus. It can look like when we become so consumed by parenting or overwhelmed by our children's schedules that we miss out on the spirit moving in our daily life. And yes, it can look like when we make wealth and money over living a life fully committed to trusting God and his provision for us. But it doesn't have to just be those things. It could truly be anything at all in our lives that we put in the wrong place in our priorities list that ends up widening the gap. And so we recognize that this gap exists between what we believe about God and what we experience from God. We recognize that often we are our own worst enemy when it comes to widening that gap. And so the question remains simply, how can we close that gap? And so to close our time today, I want to look at three ways that we can begin to close that gap. And the first is to recalibrate. Over the last year, few years, Instead of getting into automatic writing when I got bored at home, I got into collecting vinyl records. I've always really liked listening to music, and so this was a pretty no-brainer of a hobby for me. And when I was originally getting into it, I did a bunch of research on turntables and speakers, and I found the setup that works for me. But part of the process of setting up a good turntable is that you have to calibrate the tone arm. That sounds all technical, but it really just means figuring out the needle. It has a, a weight on one end of it, and the needle sharp part of it on the other end that goes on the record and you have to make it balance the right way. But even if you do it right over time, every time you listen to a record, you have to lift it, put it on the record. You got to take it off, flip the record, put it back on there over and over again. And over time, it can make it get out of balance. So the, the needle ends up too high and you can't hear it or it gets too low and digs into the groove. But the result is the same way every time. It makes it sound wrong. And so what you have to do is you have to recalibrate the tone arm. And the same is true for us when it comes to hearing the wrong voices and trying to hear the right voice. We need to recalibrate ourselves so that we can hear the voice of God. And so 
we can start doing that by tuning out whatever the wrong voice is that we listen to in our life. If the wrong voice for us is media, then maybe it's time for us to intentionally take some time away from our phone or our TV. I've mentioned this before when I've spoke, but what this looks like in my life is every Friday at 6 p.m., I turn my phone off for 24 hours so that I can more fully enter into the life that is truly life and so that I can intentionally tune out the voices that I know are not the most healthy for me and who are constantly screaming for my attention all the time. And so if the wrong voice in your life is media, tune out the wrong voice. If the wrong voice in your life is others, maybe it's time to seek out some intentional solitude and silence away from others so that you can be alone with yourself, alone with God, and tune out the voices that are distracting and unhealthy for you. If you're curious what that might look like more in your life, stay tuned because over the next few weeks, we're going to dive deeper into that very thing. And so we need to tune out the wrong voices, but we also need to tune into the right voice. And this one, I think by definition, is harder because it's more narrow. It's much like why Jesus called following him the narrow way. There are so many wrong voices all around us that we could listen to, and there's really only one voice that we really need to tune into. And so it's much more difficult, but a great way to tune into the voice of God is to immerse ourselves in the word of God to make it a part of our daily routine. Whatever that may look like for you, if it's the first thing in the morning, you grab your Bible before you grab your phone, if it looks like intentionally taking part of your lunch break to get in the Word, or if it looks like at the end of the day, after all the worries and all the things have happened, releasing all of that and and immersing yourself in God's Word. Whatever it looks like for you, the goal is immersion, immersion, not just checking an item off of a list, Not just reading the Bible because we have to, but reading the Bible to hear from God and to open our lives to the Spirit and to recalibrate our hearts to the right voice. The second thing that will help us to close the gap is to relinquish. And that's ultimately what Jesus was asking the young ruler to do, to relinquish his things, to voluntarily give up his possessions. But even deeper than that, Jesus was asking him to give up his attachment to his possessions, to shift his attitude toward his possessions. And so we have to ask ourselves, what attitude in our lives could Jesus be asking us to relinquish, to leave behind? So step one is to invite the Spirit to reveal to us what attitudes in our lives are unhealthy and holding us back. And then step two is to simply listen to that. And I say simply, but it's not easy. I know it's not easy. Letting go is one of the most difficult things to do in life. But time and time again, letting go is the exact invitation that Jesus is extending to us. See, so much of what it means to follow Jesus is ultimately just an invitation to relinquish more and more of what's holding us back so that we can enter further and further into the life that Jesus has for us. But what's also true is that connected to the invitation to relinquish is a promise of more. See, Jesus promised the rich young ruler that if he sold his possessions, then he would have treasure in heaven. For every single thing that Jesus asks us to let go of, on the other side of our obedience in that is the promise of something even better. And oftentimes that something better is more of Jesus. 
And then the last thing to help us close the gap is for us to recenter. See that our main character in this story left Jesus's invitation to come follow me, that he left that sad, shows us how important his possessions and his wealth were to his understanding of who he was at, as a person. He had made wealth and possessions the center of his life. He had made it his identity. And he couldn't conceptualize his life without those things. So in that moment, he chose to keep them at the center rather than recentering his life around Jesus. And so let's ask ourselves, what or who is at the center of our lives? Have our priorities slipped into the wrong order? Has a relationship or an activity or a goal or a career or anything in our life slipped into the spot in the center of our life where Jesus alone should be? And if the answer to that is yes, then the call for us today is to recenter our life around Jesus. We had a, a really lively, in-depth discussion of exactly what that might look like in my small group a few weeks ago. And some, what we came up with and what I, I continuously have to remind myself and learn is that keeping Jesus at the center of our life is ultimately what Jesus meant when he said elsewhere to take up your cross and follow me. It's ultimately exactly what it means to follow Jesus, to be so committed to his way of life, to be so committed to his lifestyle that we base every single thought, every decision, every action, our entire identity and our way of life, basing all of that around who Jesus is and what he would have us do in our life. It looks like keeping Jesus constantly before our minds in every moment of the day, returning again and again and reminding ourselves that our allegiance is to Jesus and Jesus alone, no matter what we feel, no matter what we see, and no matter what we experience. And so to close this morning, some bad news. While all of these things will help close the gap, I really think that unfortunately the gap ex itself will always exist. This side of Jesus making all things new, all of us will at some point fail to fully live into the reality of who God is. We will go on believing things about God. We will go on experiencing things from God. And those two things won't always line up. But also to close, some good news. Just like we can recalibrate our hearts to hear God's voice, and just like we can relinquish our wrong attitudes to be more in line with God, I believe, and just like we can also recenter Jesus as the main center of our life, the main thing that we're going after, the main thing that we have allegiance to, we can also rest in what we know to be true. And what I know to be true is this. Our sense of God has no bearing on the reality of God. And you can add to that phrase whatever you need to help you whenever you come up against the gap. Our sense of God's presence has no bearing on the reality of God's presence. Our sense of God's goodness has no bearing on the reality of God's goodness. Our sense of God's love has no bearing on the reality of God's love. Those things just are. They are facts. God is good. God is there. God is love. Whether we believe it, whether we see it, whether we feel it, those things are true. And so let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us rest in that truth.
God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together in this space to learn more about you and to enter deeper into the life that you have for us, the life that is truly life. And I pray right now, as you speak to each and every one of us, you would reveal to us where in our lives this gap has shown up and where in our lives we specifically need to enter into these truths. I pray that you would reveal to us where we need to recalibrate our hearts in order to hear your voice. I pray that you would help us to realize what attitudes we need to relinquish that are holding us back right now from going further into what you have for us. And I pray that you would help us do all of these things and that you would go with us. But ultimately what I pray above all else is that as we go through our routines, I pray that you would help us to recenter our lives on you, that we would always keep you at the center of everything that we do, everything that we are. And it's in your powerful and amazing name we pray. Amen.